0: Well, good morning once again. For those of you that maybe weren't in here at the beginning of the music, my name is John, I'm the pastor here. Uh, The year was 1952, okay, in Abilene, Texas. A desolate field in the middle of nowhere, a young man walked out and stepped onto the dust and looked at the, the plot of land he had just purchased. Now, everybody thought he was crazy. There were no plants on the land. There were no crops on the land. There was no soil suitable for farming. Yet this young man had gone and sold his car and his house and every, all, everything he owned. He sold or pawned so that he could gather together the money to buy this piece of land. Everybody thought he was crazy. Everybody thought he shouldn't do it, but he did it anyway. Do you know why? Why? Because in that ground was black gold. That young man's name was Ross Perot, multi-billionaire oil tycoon. Now I want you to imagine for a second, he knew something was there, nobody else knew was there. I want you to imagine for a second that you knew of a plot of land that had exactly the same thing underneath of it, yet nobody else knew it was there. What would you do in order to buy that property. Pretty much anything, right? The principle is when you know that something is there of great value, you will go to any length to uncover it and to own it, right? The principle is true. The story about Ross Perot, that's not true at all. I made that up, okay? I don't know how he made his money. Just trying to illustrate the principle and then when you know the value is there, you will go and you will get it. Today, we're starting a series about the parables Jesus taught. And the reason that the series is tongue-in-cheek called "Pair o bulls is because the story of the parables may not be what you think that it is. In fact, the, the, the purpose of the parables that Jesus told are very different than what most Christians think the purpose of the parables were. We're going to talk about that today. See, Jesus' whole ministry was teaching about the clash of two kingdoms, All right? That's why we have the pair of bulls locking horns. The battle that exists between, in our mentality between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world and understanding how each work and how differently they work. It is the clash of kingdoms. It is a conflict of worldviews. The reality is, it's very difficult for us to be a citizen of an earthly nation and to be a Christian or a citizen of the kingdom of God at the same time. Because more often than not, the values of those two things conflict with each other. We did a whole series on this back in the summer for those of you that were here. It's called Citizen. We talked about how to be an American citizen and a citizen of the kingdom of God at the same time because they aren't fully synonymous like some people might think that they are. It can be very difficult. And I was thinking about that. I think it's hard to be the citizen of any nation in the world and to be a citizen of the kingdom of God at the same time. I was thinking about if there was any nation on earth that I feel like would be the closest, what would it be? And it's not America. And all I could think of was Canada. Have you ever had any experience with Canadians? They're the nicest people in the world. Have you ever noticed that? I mean, if you, if you, if you're, if you feel like that maybe, that maybe Americans are harsh, you just need to go spend some time in Canada, okay? I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is about their culture, but they're the sweetest, kindest people you will ever meet. I grew up uh, going on vacation. Every single year, we did a fishing trip on the St. Lawrence Seaway, which is a Thousand Islands area, right, right on the border between the United States and Canada. And we would spend our time mostly on the American side, but the house we always stayed in, our neighbor was Canadian, and her name was Cookie, and the name fit the personality. She was sweet, and she made cookies, all right? She would bring them to us all the time. We loved Cookie. We loved seeing her. We loved, she was so nice. She's always going to go down to the dock, down to the dock. That's what she would say. We loved Cookie. I, I watch, um, subscribe to a bunch of different channels, uh, YouTube channels, mostly guitar stuff. And about half of them are Canadians. I don't know why Canadians use YouTube so much, but they do. And uh, there's a stark difference between the Canadian YouTube channels I watch and the American YouTube channels I watch. Like when I watch an American one, they just get right to it out of the gate. They're like, this episode of riffs, beards, and guitars, we're going to be talking about whatever. You know, they jump right in. You watch the Canadian YouTube channel, they're all the same. Hey, how's everybody doing today? I'm like, I can't answer you. You're on a video. <laughs> but still, like, how's everybody doing today? Today we're going to talk about, they're just so sweet. And I thought maybe Canadians, maybe they are close to being like it will be in the kingdom of God. But no, no, it doesn't matter what nation we hail from, what culture we apply ourselves to. Ultimately, it is difficult for us to reconcile an earthly kingdom with the kingdom of God. And that's what Jesus' ministry was about, talking about this kingdom. So you'll notice that at Carolina Family Church, we talk about the kingdom a lot because Jesus talked about it a lot. In fact, um, you know, Jesus is born. We have the whole Christmas story. That's coming up soon, by the way. You might want to start saving for that. Christmas is coming. Jesus comes, and then he goes dark for a while. We don't read a whole lot about him in in his younger years or his teenage years, and he reappears on the scene or is written about at about 30 years old. And before Jesus shows up, there's this guy out in the wilderness. His name is John. He happens to be Jesus' cousin. And he's baptizing people. That's why we call him John the Baptist. And he is saying this phrase. He's preaching this message over and over again. He's saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand or it's here. And Jesus goes to him, and Jesus is baptized, and it's actually a pretty amazing scene because Jesus goes down to the water to be baptized by his cousin, and cousin John says, no, 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 no. Yeah, I'm, not, no, no I, I'm not gonna baptize you. You need to baptize me because John knows who Jesus is. And Jesus says, no, no, it's important that we do this to fulfill our all righteousness, and so Jesus was baptized. We're doing baptiz- baptism next week. You may wonder, why would I be baptized? Jesus did it for us, and he set an example for us. We are supposed to follow him in baptism. So Jesus is baptized. Then he spent some time being, being tempted by Satan um, in the desert, in the wilderness, and then he begins what we know as his public ministry, which lasts about three years. And Jesus begins saying the same thing that John was saying before. So in Matthew chapter 4, We're going to be exclusively in the book of Matthew today. So if you want to open your Bibles there, open up your apps to the book of Matthew. Um, Matthew chapter four. He writes, from that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent and repent means to turn around, okay, to do a 180. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, The Jews, they knew what the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God was because the prophets had been talking about it for years and years. They believed that a savior was coming they called him the Messiah or the Christ. All right, Christ is not Jesus' last name. That's a title, okay? They believed that Christ was coming and that he was going to be the king and he was going to sit on David's throne. He would come from the line of King David. He would sit on David's throne. He would be the lion of Judah, all of these things. They were looking for him. They were waiting for him. So when John goes out into the wilderness and he starts teaching the people, he is saying, the, that guy, the one we've been waiting for, he's here. He's here and you need to get ready because he's here. And then Jesus is baptized, tempted, begins his ministry, and Jesus says, hey, I'm here. Prepare, the king is here. And then in verse 23, Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel or the good news of the kingdom and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. And Jesus begins to teach people really clearly about what this kingdom is going to be like. So we go to the most famous sermon of all time, the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus does a section of teaching that we call the Beatitudes. When he says, blessed are the poor in spirit for to them belongs the kingdom of God. Blessed are the meek blessed are the mourners. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Blessed are the peacekeepers. And he tags all of these people and he identifies groups that in earthly kingdoms and earthly governments are marginalized and ostracized and looked at as the bottom of the barrel. And he says, no, these people are going to be at the top of the heap in the kingdom. He continues to teach about the kingdom. He talks about reward. He says, he talks about prayer and about fasting. And he says, be careful because if you try to get your reward in those things from people. You will not have your reward later. He's talking about the kingdom. He talks about the kingdom over and over and over and over again. And he's teaching very, very clearly until a very important series of events happens. And if you've never seen this before, if you've never noticed this before, I think this is going to really open your eyes to what Jesus was doing in his ministry. Because I believe wholeheartedly that when Jesus Christ came to earth, he was prepared to become the king. He was prepared to sit on the throne. He was prepared to usher in his kingdom. But the qualification of that is that the nation of Israel had to accept him as their king. And if the nation of Israel had accepted him as their king, he would have taken his rightful place. But he continues to have these run-ins with the religious leaders of the Jews, the Pharisees. And ultimately, they're the ones who need to accept him in order for him to take that position at that time. But something very important happens in Matthew chapter 12. Okay, There's a series of events here at the beginning of the chapter Um, Jesus, it's the Sabbath. And and for Jews on the Sabbath, they're not supposed to do any work whatsoever. And Jesus is walking through a a field of grain with his disciples, and presumably the the Pharisees are nearby too. And they start picking heads of grain, just just plucking heads of grain to eat. You know, they were hungry. And so they were plucking heads of grain. And the Pharisees said, what are you doing? You're not supposed to do that. Okay, this is the Sabbath. You're not supposed to work. And Jesus says, I'm, I'm going to paraphrase. He says, I can do it. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. <laughs> All right. I, am, I am the king. And then he goes into the synagogue, which is their, basically their church, right? He goes into the synagogue, and there's a man there with a withered hand. And Jesus heals the man's hand. He heals a man. And the Pharisees look at him, and they say, wait, you're not supposed to do that. That's work. And again, I'll paraphrase Jesus. He was like, you're out of your mind. Okay, if, you, if any one of you were driving home today and you got a flat tire, you wouldn't just sit on the side of the road because it's the Sabbath. You would change the tire. This man needed to be healed and I healed him. Get over it. <laughs> and it's, the Pharisees are so mad at him that they begin to plot to kill him. And he knows that. So he bounces. Jesus is smart. Okay, he knew it wasn't time for that to happen yet. So they begin plotting to kill him. So he leaves the synagogue and a man now is brought to Jesus who is possessed by a demon and he's blind and he's mute, can't see or speak. And Jesus heals him, casts the demon out of him and heals him. And the Pharisees look at what Jesus said, and this is the key, okay? They, they look at what Jesus did and they said, oh, this is not by the power of God. This is by the power of Beelzebub, the prince of demons that he casts out demons very important, they attributed the work, the power and the work of the spirit to the power and work of Satan. And when he does that, Jesus says something very famous to them, which this puts this whole phrase in context. Jesus looks at them and he says, hey, listen, a house divided against itself cannot stand. You ever heard that phrase? This is where he says it. says, the house divided against itself cannot stand. I can't cast the demon out by the power of demons. It doesn't even make any sense. But then he says, he says this to him, all right, Matthew chapter twelve verse twenty-eight. But if I cast out demons by the spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. And then he looks at him and he says, and this, these are also famous, famous words. The unpardonable sin. He says, you can look at me and you can say what you want about me. But if you speak against the spirit, that will not be forgiven. And he's talking to a specific group of people at a very specific time here. But he said that will not be forgiven. And this is, he's been teaching clearly about the kingdom and offering the kingdom to the Jewish people and exclusively the Jewish people up until this point. He's been offering it. This is the straw that breaks the camel's back. He said, if you will look at what I'm doing and you will attribute it to the power of Satan instead of the power of God, then you will not. Accept me as your king, as your savior. And when that straw is placed on the camel's back, it breaks. And Jesus immediately pivots. All right, friends reference here pivot. He pivots his ministry, it changes fundamentally. He begins teaching differently, and he begins teaching to different groups of people. He begins including people outside of the nation of Israel. And all of a sudden, instead of teaching plainly about the kingdom, he begins teaching in parables. He totally changes his teaching style. And maybe you're wondering, well, okay, what's the deal with the kingdom? If he was gonna bring it then and they rejected him, what does that mean? Well, ultimately Jesus goes to the cross and he pays for our sin on the cross and he opens up the gospel to all people, Jews and Gentiles alike. Gentiles, anybody who isn't a Jew, that's me. Opens it up to all of us. We And by faith in Jesus We believe in his death. He rose again on the third day. And by faith in him, we can be saved. And it means that he had to return to heaven, but he is coming back one day. And when he returns, he is going to establish his kingdom here on earth the same way he planned to before. But it is just like it was before predicated on Israel accepting him as Savior. Okay. He is going to return and he's going to have a kingdom here on earth, a physical, tangible kingdom, just like you think of the governments that we have today who have rulers and authorities and, and, and governors and all these kind of people. He's going to have all of that and he's going to be here to do it. And we are going to get to be a part of that when it happens. And if you, if you believe literally what the scripture says, then it will be for a thousand years And after that thousand year reign of Christ, then God will fully and finally defeat Satan and he will usher in the new heaven and the new earth and everything will be restored. My son, actually, J.D. is 11 years old and I've been teaching him about this principle, trying to help him to understand. And he was asking me the other day, he said, I get it, I get Jesus is gonna come back and he's gonna rule, all right? And I get to be there. I said, yes, you do. And he said, Uh, He said, and then there's going to be the new heaven and the new earth. I said, that's right. He said, I have some questions. (laughs) I said, I said, everybody does. (laughs) He said, well, first of all, how's it going to happen? Like Jesus is the king. But then there's gonna be a new heaven, a new, like, is it gonna happen all of a sudden? All of a sudden, we're just gonna open our eyes and everything's gonna be different? Or is he gonna put us in time out for a while? Or is it gonna be a process? I'm gonna get to, is he gonna build machines? And I just looked back at him and I said, hey, buddy, I don't know. It hasn't happened yet. So I don't know exactly how it's gonna happen, but I believe that it is going to happen. And in the meantime, Jesus begins teaching about how to prepare ourselves for the kingdom that is now coming at a later time. That is what the parables are designed to do. Now, you can imagine the confusion that, that the disciples had because Jesus was teaching one way and they got used to one style of ministry and all of a sudden Jesus turns on a dime and changes so Jesus tells the parable of the sower, which we're going to do, I think, next week. We'll talk about the parable of the sower. But he, he does the parable, and they're so confused. They go to him, and they say, we're going to read it in a second, but they say, what, what's the deal, man? Why, why are you teaching like this all of a sudden? It's in Matthew chapter 13, okay? We've made the turn from chapter 12 to chapter 13. Um, the beginning of 13 is the parable of the sower. And then in verse 10 here, Says, and the disciples came to him, or came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? They meant themselves too, of course. (laughs) Like, why are you doing this? Why are you teaching this way all of a sudden? And he answered and said to them, Because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. Now, when it says mysteries, it doesn't, it's not like mystical. That's not, it's not like a magician or anything. Mysteries are previously unrevealed truths. So he is revealing something to them that's been there all along, but now they get to see it. And he says, you see it, but they don't. You accept it, but they don't. That's why I'm teaching that way. And he continues to explain. For whoever has, to him more will be given, and he will have an abundance But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. He's talking about the disciples have because they see, and the Pharisees have not because they don't see. Therefore, he says in verse 13, I speak to them in parables because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in them, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, hearing you will hear and shall not understand and seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts in turn, so that I shall heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For assuredly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. And then in verse 34, all these things Jesus spoke to the multitudes in parables. And without a parable, he did not speak to them. So he begins preaching exclusively in parables. That it might be fulfilled, which was spoken to the prophet saying, I will open my mouth in parables and I will utter things kept secret from the foundation of the world. Jesus is basically saying, here's the reason I'm teaching in parables. Because I want to tell you about the kingdom because you believe that I'm the king. And if I teach this way, because you want to understand, you will. And because they don't want to understand, they won't. You know, I always believed, until I learned differently, I always believed that the parables, Jesus taught in parables, to try and take complex ideas and make them simple. That he, was, that he was boiling down things so the average person could understand, much like we would give an analogy for something to try and explain it to someone who might not understand what we're talking about. That is not why Jesus used parables. In fact, that's the trick of the parable. Jesus used parables as, in essence, a sort of code so that the people who were looking for kingdom principles would find them, but the people who were not would miss them. You see, when when Jesus told parables, the parables were designed to teach about the kingdom. What it was, how it worked, who was going to be great, how reward was going to work, all of that. That was the design. But he knew that when he told these stories, even if the Pharisees sat along and listened, they wouldn't hear the truth about the kingdom. What they would hear is a nice moral story. So the reality is when we take parables and all we do with them is use them to teach nice moral principles, we've fallen into the same trap he set for the Pharisees in the first place. We are, we are missing what the parable is actually about. Now, yes, we can take principles out of the parables, but if we took of the parable, for example, of... Um, the prodigal son, which we're going to probably also do during this series. Um, The prodigal son is a story of a a boy boy who demands his inheritance, and he goes off and he squanders it in wild living, and then he returns home, and the one brother doesn't want him to come home because that brother's been faithful, but he runs home, and the father willingly accepts him. And we could say, well, the, what that parable, what Jesus is trying to teach, he's trying to teach us that we need to have grace for people. He's teaching us that no matter how hard someone is, how bad someone has hurt us, we, we should always welcome them home. And while that's probably true, that's not what Jesus was teaching Jesus is teaching a very important principle about the kingdom. And each of those people represent someone in a group of people that is very important to our understanding of how the kingdom works. And I'm not going to give it away because we're going to get to it later in the series. But if we just take these parables at their surface level, we will miss out on what Jesus is actually doing, which is trying to teach us about the kingdom that he's bringing. And so today I want to start with two of the... Uh, first parables he teaches. These come right after the parable of the sower. They're short and simple, and I want to start with them because I think it sets the stage for the rest of the series. They're both in Matthew chapter 13, and it's verses 44 through 46. The first one is the parable of the hidden treasure. This might sound familiar in just a moment. All right, verse 44. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and hid. And for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Sounds a little bit like the lie that started our sermon today. It's a good way to start a sermon (laughs) if you ask nobody. All right. And then the parable, the next one is the parable. He follows it right up with the parable of the pearl of great price. This is verses 45 and 46. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls. Who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now, what is Jesus saying? What is he teaching us? Most people look at faith. Most people from the outside look at Christianity they look at this idea of the kingdom and all they see is a field of dirt. All they see is a plot of land. What we know is that in the kingdom of God and learning to live as a citizen today, it's not a field of dirt. There is treasure within the soil that is worth giving up our life for. Some people look at Christians and they don't understand why a Christian would make the choices that they make Why they would sacrifice themselves for someone else and put someone else ahead of them. Why they would give money to an organization to help it do ministry. Why they would choose forgiveness when they should be choosing revenge in everyone else's view why they would act this way, why they would be kind to their enemy, why they would love their neighbor. Why would they do all of these things? Because all they do is they look at the Christian life and they see the same field they see over here and over here and over here that everyone else is living. And say, I don't understand But once you put your faith in Christ and you say, I want to be a part of that kingdom, once you see the treasure that waits for us, once you see the joy set before us, then we are willing to be different and crazy and weird in people's eyes. We are willing to buy that field and we are willing to give up absolutely anything we have to give up in order to have it. We're willing to make sacrifices. We are willing to go against the grain. We're willing to look a little bit crazy and a little bit weird because we believe that field holds the real treasure. And Jesus is beginning to talk to them in parables about the kingdom and he's trying to communicate to them, listen, what I'm about to teach you, what I'm about to tell you, what I'm offering to you is worth giving up your entire life for. It's worth giving up your entire life for. And it is, saddens me to know that there are Christians who attend church every single week, listen to Christian Bible studies and teachings, listen to Christian music, surround themselves with all these Christian things, but still haven't actually discovered the treasure that's there. Still don't have their eyes set ahead, but have their eyes set here. They have their eyes set on the surface instead of underground, in our analogy. But there is so much more and so much better that's available to us when we believe that Jesus is returning and gonna establish his kingdom and he rewards those who are faithful to him and every bit of sacrifice we make and every gift that we give and every action we do, every time we choose to go against the kingdom of the world in order to go with the kingdom of God, there's reward waiting and it's like treasure in a field or a pearl that defies any valuation. I was reading, um, I was reading some uh, wise words from other teachers, and uh, I was reading a commentary by Matthew Henry, and he said this: "What is thy beloved more than another beloved?" This is he's talking about the mentality people have when they look at Christians and they don't understand why we behave that way we have or why we think that the treasure in our field is any different than someone else's. So, why is thy beloved more than than another beloved? What is the Bible more than other good books? The gospel of Christ more than Plato's philosophy or Confucius's morals. But those who have searched the scriptures, so as in them to find Christ and eternal life, have discovered such a treasure in this field as makes it infinitely more valuable. I wonder if you found that treasure. Jesus had a situation where he was, um, it was later on in his ministry and he was teaching. And a young man came to Jesus and he was a very wealthy man, a very powerful, a very prominent man. And he said, Jesus, I want to follow you. What do I have to do? And Jesus says, well, you got to, you know, you got to keep all the commandments. And he says, I've done that. I've done, I've done all of that since I was a little boy. And Jesus looked at him and he said, one thing you lack, go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Then come and follow me. And it says, the scripture says that he walked away sad because he was very wealthy. He wasn't willing to pay the price for the field. He wasn't willing to pay the price to be faithful to God because the kingdom of the world was a lot more attractive to him. What about me? What about you? Jesus says, surely any of those who have left lands and family and inheritance sh- shall by no means lose their reward in the kingdom. He's, he said, yeah, you might give up things here, but you're gaining there. Yeah, you got to sell your car. Yeah, you got to sell the house. Yeah, you got to do it to buy the field, but... You bought it. I think one of the best examples actually happens right at the very end of Matthew chapter 12. Jesus did all that stuff where he's, he's, he's facing the Pharisees and the Sabbath stuff and the man with the withered hand and, and, and casting the demon out and them attributing that to Satan and him saying a house divided can't stand. And, and and you, uh, blasphemy against the Holy spirit will not be forgiven. and, and then, But what happens at the very end is that he's teaching. Matthew chapter 12, he's teaching. And uh, his, his mom and brothers are outside. And they come to him and they say, Jesus, he's teaching people. And, and they say, Jesus, you need to come. Your mother and your brothers are outside. And he looks at the people that he's there teaching. And he said, these are my mother and my brothers. I think it's a very important moment where Jesus is saying, the kingdom is more than blood. More than our blood, but that the kingdom is based on his blood. That he has a spiritual family that will last forever, that is greater than even his earthly family, which is temporary. Jesus was saying, I'm willing to pay the price. And ultimately, he was willing to pay the price when he gave his life on the cross to pay for our sins. He was willing to give his entire life away. And he proved that not just with his death on the cross, but he proved it with his entire life. That he was willing to give away his entire life to be faithful to the mission that God had given to him. And I think it's appropriate today for us as we're going to talk about this clash of kingdoms over the next few weeks. The clash of the kingdom of God with the kingdom of the world and understanding how to be, how to think about and live in the kingdom of heaven. To ask ourselves that question, am I willing to pay the price? Am I willing to choose that kingdom over this one? And I hope that once we discover it, we will hold it in such high esteem that we'd be willing to do absolutely anything to get it. And I want that for me and I want that for you because you understand that learning to live in the kingdom is the pathway to peace. It's the pathway to joy. It's the pathway to purpose. Everything else in this world is going to frustrate us. But when we are pursuing what God has designed for us, it will never frustrate us or leave us empty. And so it's worth it. It's worth whatever sacrifice that we need to make in order to do it. I don't know what that sacrifice is for you or me exactly. What it might cost us. It might, it might cost you social status. Are you willing to give that up? Are you willing to give up social status in order to gain reward in the kingdom? It might cost relationships. I know I hate that. It, it, it is uncomfortable. I've had to go through that myself in the past. It might cost us relationships. Are you willing to give up a relationship that God wants you to give up? It might cost us freedom. The freedom to do and to be whatever we want, wherever we want, whenever we want. Are we willing to pay? It might cost us in some case Careers. Some of you might be in careers or have jobs that you just know that you can't do this. You can't do this and function the way that God wants you to function. And you're scared to death of giving it up. But are you willing to? If you feel like he says you need to? Are you willing to give up a pre-existing mentality about something? I often think that for most of us, this might be the hardest thing to give up in order to see things the way God wants us to see it? A a political stance or a social stance? Would I be willing to back down off of that and say this is not the way that God actually thinks? Would you be willing to give that up? Would you be willing to give up certain traditions that might be contrary to what God has designed for you? Would you be willing to give up opportunities that God puts in front of you that may be, by worldly standards, unbelievable opportunities, but you know that if you walk down that path, you're not going to be able to be faithful to God the way that you need to be? Are you willing to give that up to pay that price? Are you willing to give up money? And we hang on tight. And we talked about this. This is our message last week. It's not the money. It's the stuff that the money can do, right? Are you and me willing to give that up so we could have something of far higher value? Since your time that's valuable to us. Are you willing to give it up? Are you willing to sacrifice your schedule if God calls you to? Are you willing to give up influence? And I'm going to throw this one out there, although in in the the society that we live in, it's not very likely, but it's certainly possible. Would you be willing to give your life if God called you to? If you were put in a position where you had to choose between the two? What, what, What price would you be willing to pay I want you to know that whatever it is, and this is something that I'm learning too, whatever it is, is worth it. It's worth it. Whatever frustration you may experience, whatever pain it may cause you, it is not worth comparing the glory that's waiting for you. Whatever suffering you may face on earth, Paul said this very specifically, whatever suffering I may face is not worth comparing to the glory which awaits me. And so I would just tell you, whatever it is, and if we, if we, as we've been talking, I've been throwing out examples, maybe there's something that's jumped into your mind and you're thinking, that's what it is. I want to encourage you based on the promises of God, based on the goodness of God, based on the glory of God, based on the power of God, based on the leading of God, to look at that thing that you don't want to give up and say, I'm willing to pay it. I'm willing to pay it. All right. Now, these are big decisions and we need God's help with them. So let's go to him together in prayer. God, this is a big decision. Big request. We are faced constantly with the pressure to cave in to the desires and the values of the world around us. It's, it's all we've known for so long. And it's what makes sense to us as human beings. Because it's the sin within us and the desires of, of men and women that have created this. And so we feel very in sync with this world yet out of sync at the same time because we know that you haven't created us for this world as it is. You created us to be in perfect harmony with you, to be in a perfect relationship with you, And because of our sin, that relationship has been broken. But we thank you that through your son, Jesus Christ, and his death on the cross, blood shed for our sins. He paid for our sin. He rose again on the third day. And by faith in him, believing in him, we are forgiven. And we can stand before you justified and right. And to know that we will spend eternity with you. And we've got to wade through this world in the meantime. But we want to get ready for the kingdom that you're bringing. We pray, Lord Jesus, if it's God, if it is your will, that that kingdom would come today. That Christ, you would return today. We know you can do that. But in the meantime, as we wait, we want to prepare ourselves for the kingdom. So Jesus, thank you for giving us the parables. Thank you for teaching in such a way that those of us who want to hear and want to learn and want to experience the kingdom can hear it from you in that way. And I pray, God, that as we embrace these over the next few weeks, as we read them to discover the truth that is there, that you would use that to encourage us and to lead us. So God, for anybody here who walked in today, not sure that they would be with you in the kingdom, I pray, God, that you would encourage them and that today, if they've never put their faith in your son, Jesus Christ, they could simply believe. And that by believing in Christ, they can know that their sins are paid for by him. And they can begin a journey in this life of learning to be more like Christ, learning how to live in the kingdom. And that we can set our hope, all of us who've made that decision can set our hope forward on your return. Knowing that when you do, you will set things right. Prepare us for that. And as we make decisions and we say, what price are we willing to pay in order to be faithful to you, in order to have reward in the kingdom and decisions are made across this room, I pray that you give us the power the boldness to follow through, strength in the spirit to pay that price. And as we do, and even if we face difficulty, even if we face pain, even if we face persecution, that we would know that it is worth it. We thank you. It's in your name we pray.